from LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. Hi, I'm Kyla. And this is Jay. And you're listening to Strange Fruit Podcast. Welcome back, to listeners. I hope y'all are still hanging in there. We are still knee deep into this coronavirus uh, home quarantine situation. But we always strive each week to bring you an entertaining podcast that hopefully piques your interest, but also makes you laugh and chuckle a little bit. But uh, we especially want to help make you think. In today's episode, um, we hope makes you think. It certainly made me think to read uh, to read this piece. You know, we're always talking about race, sexuality, gender. And, you know, of course, we're always talking about black issues, but I think it's always important to talk about um, issues that affect other people of color. And and um, especially when you can be like, child, I feel that right on. That's that's something we experience too. And it reminds us all that it's people of color, queer folk, women, disabled folk, like regardless of like what our kind of quote unquote difference is or whatever it is that makes us unique, as I like to put it, that we all have like a lot more in common. There's probably a whole lot of experiences that we can relate to. So let's hop right into a doc. Uh, listeners, please welcome to the show today's first guest, um, Jessica Hoppy. Right, Jessica Hoppy. Jessica, how are you? Hey, thank you so much for having me, guys. This is really awesome. I'm so well, good. Excited. Glad to have you here. So I didn't, I didn't tell our listeners what your piece is about. So your piece that I, I read on uh, gen.medium.com, the title mm-hmm. says, I found a job that honored my Latina voice and was instantly tokenized. So I see this on the headline. I'm like, oh, I, I got to read this. Like, I, was, I actually didn't even read. I was like, I saw the headline and I emailed uh, Kyla. And I was like, yo, we got to have her on as a guest. I, was like, I can relate. But in the story, you talk about that despite a rising interest in Latinx culture, mm-hmm. the white media gatekeepers continue to sensationalize the stories of Latinx people. I'm going to talk about some specific examples. But you opened your essay in the summer of 2017, right? And then mm-hmm. I saw this on the radio. It's a hit, right? And you talk about, you know, the song that's a hit on the radio. Everybody's singing to it. Everybody's dancing to it. And you're mm-hmm. in a nightclub. You're in a lounge. And mm-hmm. the song comes and you have an interaction with the white woman. What's that song? What happened? <laughs> and how did you, how did you frame your conversation in this essay? Well, I was um, at a popular lounge. A lot of my friends, you know, um, I've been a party girl, you know. So I knew my way around. And, uh that summer, Despacito became a really big deal, even though it had already been a chart-chopping song um, in the Spanish language uh, sector. Um, once Justin Bieber put his auto-tuned vocals on it, I think I say, um, I'm obviously not, like, I, I'm, I'm very neutral about Justin Bieber. I don't really care. Um, Despacito became a really big deal. And um, the way my friends are sort of referring to Latinos, uh, became different. And a couple of really popular guys uh, came into the English language music. It, it, there was a big crossover, big crossover moment. And I was dancing and uh, a woman sort of grabbed my arm. Well, she had just been watching us for a while, watching me in particular. And um, I am a mixed race Latina. I was raised in um what is frankly as a segregated town it was just predominantly white and for a long time my family and I were the only non-white people you know in my school my town 
um, later on in high school, one black family moved in. Um, so I was accustomed to this kind of nonsense, but still living in New York city, I was not, I was not prepared for that, but she, she pulled my arm down and she said, I love watching you dance. Uh, your people are so fun. <laughs> so I was really, wow. yeah, yeah wow. I was yeah. really taken aback. I remember saying something to my friend uh, who's white. I, it did not resonate with her in a negative way, you know? And so I say in my essay that I had been used to being, um, especially having dated white men predominantly for like my adulthood, you know, until more recently. And then I, in my writing, began to investigate that as well, as far as my programming and my internalized issues um, regarding, you know, myself, um, who I am and how I was projecting that out onto, you know, selecting a partner. But um, I was very, I was really angry. I was very upset and there wasn't anyone around really who could who could just validate how I felt. And so that moment just sort of, you know, I internalized that again and I sort of moved on with the evening. But when this job came around, I just realized that that was such a, um, that is not a compliment to anyone who's listening who is not a person of color. That is never a compliment. Fetishizing people um, is always a really, really demeaning a sort of thing and it just really exposes the way that we see each other as more or less human um looking to people and obviously the black community i mean from the town from you know you understand how much and you your community has been at the forefront of exposing um appropriation and being treated as entertainment fodder and and not not fully fully human and sort of earning our ways into spaces that are dominated by white people all of that has that connotation all of that is wrapped in that very small searing statement um your people are so fun. I just, um, you know, and the way she said it and the way her breath smelled and the way she looked at me, even the way her nails uh, were in the skin of my wrist, it just, whew, it was, um, it, it was, was really creepy. It was creepy. And you'll, you'll, like, I'll, I'll, you'll never forget, like, all those idiosyncratic things, like the smell of her I breath. I will not, yeah. Like, 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 you'll never forget that. You'll never forget sure. it. And, that, and like, and it, and it's, it's like white people just, oh, that was so hard. I didn't mean to be harmed by it. But, oh, uh, yeah, anyway, Doc, you have a question. I'm sorry. I just had to, I, I feel you completely. In that moment, you'll never forget the finest details. And yeah. then, I just want to say this before I give it to Doc, we find ourselves then owning, like, I find myself in those situations, be like, what could I have done differently? What should I have said? I should have cussed her out. I oh, yeah. Done, I should have, like, I should have done this. Or what did I do to invite that or make her think that was okay? Yes, or, I know. I Why didn't I stand up this? for myself? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you, end up, you end up owning the bullshit. That this person put on it to me. Anyway, Doc, please go. No, yes, no. It, I mean, and I, I hate it um, at the same time. And, and those incidents are always followed by the person who did the offending, you know, executing their privilege while claiming victimhood. So that's really the, the thing. You know, like you were saying, Jay, like, oh, I didn't mean anything by it. And right, being offended that you're offended or upset, or that you're unnerved in any kind of way. Anything they sense that isn't approval, 
they then turn into victims, even though they're the ones who are the aggressors. Yes. Yeah. And then you have that labor to take care of. Yeah. Yeah. Them to coddle and then yourself later to process. But then it's just not really considering, you know, I was just in that moment this morning where I saw something totally offensive on my Facebook, which is why I don't even go on my Facebook because it's all people from my past that I just don't, you know, want to bother arguing with. But at the same time, it's so offensive. And um, I do have to sort of do that cost benefit analysis as, you know, what does it mean to me to say something, you know, how much labor am I going to do on the back end? How upset am I going to be? How many hours is that going to take away from my day? You know, what's, what's my level? how much energy do I have mental, you know, mental health capacity do I have today based on how I'm feeling to deal with that? I, I wasn't able to say anything in that moment. Um, and I think I turned to my friend for support and then it almost hurt me more that my friend couldn't understand how I was feeling. And then we were in a nightclub situation where I'm like, maybe this isn't the time to uh, it get into the deep yeah, and, you, and you And you pointed out in your piece how, um, even though this was awful, right? This wasn't the first time that you encountered this idea mm. of fetish being flattery or at least the offender, you know, thinking that it's flattery and how you lead into your your new job that you thought you were going to be able to like express yourself and be yourself, but ended up being tokenized. And mm. the lead into that is you talking about American Dirt and all the fanfare that mm. surrounds the novel and lead us into why you start uh, talking about American Dirt and how that relates to this new position you got where you Mm. inevitably tokenized. What was so interesting about the timing of that was at the, like that certainly wasn't the climax. That was like the moment where when I was fired, two things happened. Gabrielle Union had similar um, complaints against um, NBC or or the American. NBC and America's Got Talent. Yeah, yes. And the the similarities were so crazy. And I remember reading that article in New York Magazine and being like, if Gabrielle Union, you know, like can't be heard in this way. And and I respect her so much for being so vocal about these things. Um, I was just like, what power do I have? You know, but I, I, I couldn't really, I couldn't reconcile the way it, it had all gone down. It was so fucked up. Um, so- Jessica, Jessica, if I could just take a moment, just so, yeah. to fill our listeners in. So I, I want you to go read this essay, but so essentially what happens is you, you hear about a, about a new writing opportunity, that, that a website that wants to focus on Latinx issues. And so you yes. get invited to, to come write for this, to come write for this organization. You're feeling really excited. It's even mm-hmm. owned by, by a person who, who's got Latinx heritage. But long story short, you'll probably feel some of the details. Some shit goes down and, and you're, mm-hmm. you're fired because you kind of raised the flag about like, yo, this is kind of pandering to, to get yeah. something. And so you're From not going so, but like the fact, the very fast story is exactly that. I was brought in to um, develop content, Latinx oriented content, and they wanted an authentic voice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the woman in charge was a white woman. So it was very confusing. A lot of the meetings um, were often just like, you know, very offensive. And I was always directed towards, I thought we were going to do something that would be authentic and elevating this voice and reminding people that, this is not clickbait. This is not a homogenous culture of ethnicity. One person cannot be representative of an entire, you know, cultural group or an identity. So I, um, it became increasingly apparent that this woman was 
both trying to mine this like data for her own purposes and also incredibly threatened by it. So when she felt that that the benefit of having me around was uh, just too risky for herself, she definitely organized a way to get rid of us and um, me and my partner. Um, but it was incredibly hurtful. We, we did it our, our best. I mean, we gotten so many, I mean, she told me once, as I write in the article, um, that she felt like I was attacking her white writers, which was probably one of the most, it was one of the most appalling moments of my career because that is usually, I, I don't even know, I don't even know how you say that and with a straight face. And it was the same moment that you were saying um, that you're left with not only being so horrified and, and offended, but then you're left with apologizing or backpedaling or, or pulling back. And that's because I asked for more representation. I asked that if this is a Latinx website, that there be more Latinx writers, because at that time, well, in the whole time that I was there, it was predominantly white writers. So I don't understand how. But so in the background, there was a Mexican man who was um, sort of the founder, you know, the physical, like the letterhead sort of yeah, leader. The, the, fi the financer, even the financer. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But, um, but the woman in charge of us uh, was, yeah, a very um, unstable white woman. It was just like, it was the get out house for Latinos. It was just a horrible experience. And I, I couldn't believe that it was happening. Um, I was very much like in denial and, and then thinking that I could, I could win, you know, I was, I kept thinking, you know, whenever this kind of thing happens, you always tell yourself, this cannot happen. This is not, not anymore, you know, or not to me, or, but this kind of stuff is completely, it is so difficult to prove. There really is such little recourse for people of color when, when this happens to them, you get fired and it's so hard to prove that it was because of X, Y, Z. It was because of everything that we know for sure is happening. But like, you know, I'll speak to my lawyer and what is actually, what is actionable is so difficult to prove. Um, but you do whatever is inside you, you just honor, you know, whatever you need to yeah. sort of, you know, face yourself in the mirror. But, but yeah, American Dirt happened and I'm a writer. So being a writer is pretty tough. Um, freelancing work, especially now is sort of out the window. And so you are, um, you're taking a lot of gigs and such. And so American Dirt sort of exposed the literary world for what it is, that it is more than 80% white, that editors and the people who are looking at purchasing books for publishing houses are mostly white women. And um, they're making those decisions based on their personal perspective, whether you know they would want to admit it or not. So the likelihood of something like this getting past so many hands without anyone raising a flag is plausible because no one is there to sort of run interference. And if they are, and I've met many of them and they're wonderful, they're so few and they're not senior enough to, um, to stop it, even if they give that kind of feedback. Sure. So it just was published not only with um, a huge budget. It was like in a bidding war, about six figures. Uh, the the author, Janine Cummings, made a huge gaffe. And I can't believe that one of the editors didn't tell her about this editor's note. She says, uh, I wish someone browner than me would have written this. And it was just, you know, the whole 
whole of the like <laughs> like Latinx, we just did a gasp. You know, we were just like <gasps> because we know how hard it is to be published. We know how difficult it is to just get in the door. Um, and what I would give for that kind of opportunity, and then to be told that it has something to do with a meritocracy or that someone wasn't doing the work. It's it's just like capitalism, you know, as long as you keep people believing that someone just did it better, did it first, did it, you know, and we don't acknowledge privileges, we're really doing a disservice and you're not getting the beautiful, you know, colors, you're not getting all of the different perspectives that are way, way, way superior writing. And then it got all of the, you know, we got all of the praise, it got all Oprah's book club and and on and on, but people like Miriam Gerba, who wrote the um, review of it, and it got, um, it was going to go into Ms. Magazine, and they told her that she wasn't important enough for, you know, to write something so disparaging, and they couldn't publish it, and she was basically like, Fuck you, and she published it on Tropics of Meta, and it went totally viral, and my partner and I were watching it all the way, and we had been hearing about it anyway, so we were tracking it. And at this time, I was deciding what I wanted to do with my former employer. And this just gave me a, a community and um, a lot of validation because, you know, I, when these things happen at your job, no matter how much you know the truth, you do start to uh, question yourself and question your voice. And maybe you, you had done something to deserve this. But I knew that that wasn't true. And then seeing all the numbers and all the people in the industry, whether it be editorial or, or literary, um, come out and, and support each other and really, really expose the truth. It was so, so, yeah, it was so validating. It was such a moment for our community. Yeah. And then the pandemic happened. <laughs> yeah, and the pandemic happened. I want to ask you, in your, in your essay, you also kind of, you put, you posit what's going on with you as well as the kind of rise of, of Latinx kind of infatuation with also <laughs> what's happening sociopolitically, right? What's happening in the White House and the comments going out of the White House and also what's happened, what happened um, in El Paso, Texas. Talk a bit about what you reference in terms of sociopolitically and how those things kind of, although they seemingly are, are opposed to each other, right? This kind of love of Latinx culture, everybody dances in Esposito, but also a kind of identification of Latinx people, which of course that part is nothing new, right? But how do you simultaneously have such anti-brown, uh, such anti-brown, anti-Latinx rhetoric and even violence but simultaneously wanting the Latin spice, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, 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 and how those things are kind of, those things can, can coexist, but then also cancel one another out or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it very much is just constantly feeling like uh, consumption, you know, whether it be positive or negative, you know, whether it be labor or um, entertainment or, you know, being a farm worker or, or just the simple, idea that people, you know, flippantly use terms like illegal, um, or that within the Latinx culture, we have a huge issue with anti-Blackness, and we have a scale of good, better, best based on our proximity to whiteness, that we constantly aspire to whiteness, that we are devoted in our, um, in our ideas of that capitalism and colon, well, you know, from the roots of colonization and now capitalism teaches us that we work, 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 work hard. You know what I mean? Like these are the hallmarks of the Latinx culture, humility, work ethic. You know, these are the things in my, 
my father instilled in me. And, you know, he, I referenced my dad in, in the piece as well. Um, and that he learned the hard way, but I still am, um, am very much like dependent on this system, a system that does not work for me. And then to have people and people like me um, have a reputation that, that's highly marketed um, in our community. That means that whether or not I'm in a C-suite space or I am a labor worker, when I'm in that C-suite space, I am the only one and that's not okay. And because the rhetoric is this way about people that look like me, that people who come from families like mine, places where I come from, Central America, um, which is part of the Northern Triangle, which is predominantly where all of the migrants are coming from right now. So it's not Mexicans, it's Central Americans, first of all, people from El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, my mom's from Honduras. And my mom is actually from one of the towns where the first migrant caravan began. This has been deeply, deeply personal for me since the beginning. So it's just so, I and I know people in the Santam community especially um, have been deeply affected by, by how it feels to just exist in this country where people are so ignorant, whether they mean to be um, hurtful or not, just the language that we use and not not being aware of of how that might be offensive or how that might feel to people. Um, you know, the, the the ways that it's pushed around, like in my circles, is more like, oh, well, I don't mean you. You know, well, I'm going to say something like uh, those Mexicans or dirty Mexicans. It, it literally feels like I'm back in high school. You know, I said to my friend, like, I've never felt like Literally what the bullies in my high school used to say to me, the president now says, you know, he launched his whole campaign using the terms and, and the racism and the stereotypes that my bullies used against me when I was a kid. It's a really, really, it's a re-traumatization. And um, it doesn't seem that we're, we're getting anywhere with it, you know, because we, we use the pandemic and then all of a sudden we shut down immigration. Um, we close our borders, which is not part of the problem um, to give people green cards who are already in process, but those are the people who get hurt. I was just downstairs talking to my mother who um, was always really active in the community. She still is. My dad always was too. And there's a busing system in the neighboring towns here where they organize with factories to um, basically transport large groups of, of migrant people who are here um, documented or undocumented and take them to factory work where if they're paying someone um, $14, they'll pay them maybe 10. And then from their paycheck, they already deduct all the taxes, everything off that normally and the transportation. So they're getting maybe five to $7 an hour. Um, but their options here are so, are so small. So it's better for them to earn, you know, my mother's friend says, well, it's better to have $200 or $300 and have nothing. So we have a we have a system here that just doesn't, it's not the utopia that we're sold, but we learn to say yes to things because like, well, it's better than. And, and so I really struggle to have a mentality that feels, that just perceives the world and life the same way that my white friends do. You know, I, I internalize it as like, I don't, I can't, uh, 
ask for the things that I deserve, or I can't value my time as much as other people. I have to work. I must, you know, these things are, are instilled in me. Um, and so I'm trying to deprogram that. Like that's how that works on a, on a personal level. Politically, it means that when I'm in, uh, when I achieve any sort of success or positioning, it's always, how did she get here? You know, <laughs> um, and so when you have someone who, you know, in, in the, I went to a really fascinating um, conference at the United Nations and they were talking about how powerful marketing is and that it works for classes, you know, different people and ethnic groups. And so when the rhetoric is this way about America, in America and all over the world about uh, immigrants from Central and South America, Latinx immigrants, when no matter where you are in, you know, socially or um, in the workforce, you're always going to be equated as that, that stereotype that's highly prevalent. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, whatever the most dominant stereotype is, there's nothing that you can do to really change that mind frame. Certainly, um, yeah. So that, that's why that's limiting. That's why that's harmful because we, yeah. we don't have the same shot. And, and I think the best thing that people can do is at least acknowledge that. Just say, absolutely. I absolutely. understand that this is unfair for you. Yeah, um, absolutely. Before we're out of time, Jessica, I want to, to let Doc have the last question. Uh, cause I've, I've learned so much from you. And uh, like, I, I'm just, I, I like I said, I, I can feel this on so many levels and I'm learning so much more from you about what it's what it's like. I mean, we work, you know, we work in journalism peripherally through this podcast, mm -hmm. and we're privy to some kind of things that we're able to see or observe uh, through our colleagues. But just to hear from you, and you know, and, and this, this is probably universal. Doc works in, in, the, in the collegiate play, places. I work in the service industry. Like these kind of issues, we can probably all relate to. But but, Doc, you had a question, huh? Mm. Yes, yes, um, Jessica. I really, really loved your piece, and you and you ended. You ended by talking about your father and your father's dreams for yourself as well as your own. And you talk about how you wanted to protect your father from the disappointing reality that is like the tokenized Latinx experience. And so he, you know, you said, you talked about how he would always tell you to fight and to keep fighting. How does one keep fighting Jessica when it <laughs> seems as if everything is stacked against them, right? When it seems as if, oh, you'll be celebrated for diversity in this space, but actually you're going to be tokenized. What, <laughs> what is the recovery look like for someone um, who has to keep fighting, right? For authentic space and Latinx representation. What, what do you use to keep fighting? I think that's a fantastic question. I was literally just talking to my mother and my sister about this. And I really had to face in, in this pandemic, especially and after uh, the trauma of that of that work experience, where I have to face my own um, my own issues with materialism and my own dependency on on systems like capitalism that are just simply not made for me. And um, instead of raging against it, I think that I want to look more and value the people who are like minded in my community. You know, and I don't want to be as focused on like for me, for my book, I'm like, oh, well, I learned so much about from Dignidad Literaria that, you know, a lot of book deals are like 5K, 8K, you know, and if they don't have the support of of the publishing house, they're not seen. Um, I've seen so many uh, young writers, uh, young and, you know, any age, but many POC writers who have worked their whole lives to publish a book and then the pandemic happened and they can't book tour and they can't do these things and 
and people have really rallied around them. And I have put so much emphasis on like, well, I need to get this thing and, and this far. And if I get a book, it has to be a bestseller and it has to meet these measurements. And I, and I, I remember I went to a talk once, uh, the former presidential candidate, Marian Williamson. People think she's hokey, but she's actually quite brilliant. And um, I do remember one day I went to see her. She used to give talks in Manhattan um, twice a month. And a woman who was new to the self-help you know, genre basically asked her, you know, how do I get more popular? How do I, you know, get to your level of, um, you know, reach? And she seems really hokey and like obsessed with love, but um, she's actually quite tough. And she essentially told the woman, like, you, you've got it all wrong. Like, if you're worried, you, she was basically like, no movement ever started with everybody being like, oh, that's such a great idea. That's amazing. It's always a couple people together that everyone calls crazy. And that, you know, that commitment to that idea begins to slowly spread and, and gain a movement. But she, I'll always remember that she said, it's not about how many people you reach. It's how deeply you connect with, with even one person. So for me, I've just changed my entire perspective where I'm not, uh, it doesn't sit well with me. And so I yeah. think if every person takes the moment to just decide, okay, these are my priorities for my career and be really honest and unapologetic about it. You know, if you're really into popularity and you want to get your social media up, like go, you know, go for it, like do it. If that really fulfills you in your heart, that's awesome. But if you're going yeah. for a deeper connection, which are the, the topics that I tend to, to go into, which can feel very uncomfortable for a lot of people, I really um, am so touched by you reaching out to me, by the emails that I get, the long ass DMs that I get, <laughs> um, because they're reflective of the kind of connections that I wanna make. Um, yeah. And they're reaching out to the people who are my people. So I think if we can kind of let go of this bigger, better, you know, mushroom effect of growth that, that you know, our society has, has taught us to equate with our value and our success. And we sort of pay attention to the wonderful feedback, the fulfilling connections that we're making when we're being really truthful about our voice and we're saying true to yeah. that, you hear exactly what you need. And if you can value that as much as you value a hundred likes on Instagram or whatever the f you're going after, if you touch into that, that's the recovery. That's what it's been for me. It's really, really yeah. smacked me in the face with like, what was I really after? You know, what am I really yeah. trying to change the tenor of this conversation? It's not, it's not my job. It's not up to me. It's not even possible. Look what happened. But I was able, even though I was really scared to write all of that, um, to connect with a lot of people, especially, you know, Latinas and POC who, who like you said, wow, I really, that touched me. And I, I felt seen by that. And then, you know, it, it moves into the next thing and you can kind of reconcile. You're like, okay, you know, I'm the baby sister. So I do struggle with asserting myself. It takes me a little bit of time, but when I get there and I know what I want to say, and I, I do stand my ground in saying it, wow, that's really fulfilling. And then that resonates in the way where I get the kind of uh, feedback that makes me- And support that you need, yeah. That, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what, that, that makes absolute sense. And I feel that, I'll tell you what, Jessica, it has been a delight to have you on the show today, listeners. So wonderful. Uh, Jessica Hoppy, journalist. Have we wish you the best of luck. Come back anytime. Thank you, Thank you so much for 
Thank you so much, guys. You're welcome. You'll be well. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. The work we do on Strange Fruit wouldn't be possible without your support. If we've made you laugh, or made you think, we hope you'll consider chipping in. Visit donate.strangefruitpod.org. That's donate.strangefruitpod.org. Thank Thank you. you. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. All right, so big thanks to today's guest, Jessica Hoppy, for a really wonderful discussion about, um, you know, the way in which she had to navigate the corporate world as a, as a brown woman, as a Latina. I mean, we certainly know what it's like navigating corporate spaces, academic spaces as black folk. And it's just really, I'm going to first of all say it's cool to see, but it's actually not cool to see the other folk of color go through the same struggle. It's not cool, but you get what I'm saying, Doc, that that is that racism and white supremacy are universal things, right, that affect all people. I mean, certainly black people are most impacted, but all people of color to some degree, and even some white people, right, suffer because of white supremacy. No, definitely. And I think that it all roots back to anti-Blackness. And so even though Latinas um, um, and Latinx folk are not, even though Latinx folk aren't viewed as Black folk, they are viewed as people of color, which- Like Black like black adjacent. <laughs> definitely Black adjacent. And so every person of color has to navigate through anti-Blackness um, in order to not- in order to not fall into stereotype in their job, in order not to be like a comic relief at their job, anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Navigating those microaggressions in a workspace is particularly hard. Yeah, all right. Well, thumbs up for a really wonderful discussion. Uh, we hope you're doing well, dear listeners. Well, as I always say, the, 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 end, the end is near, the end is in sight. Hopefully you all are staying safe, staying sanitized and sanitary. Okay, and sanitary. Sanitized and sanitary. And hey, just a little bit longer, y'all. And I think that um, certainly we'll, we'll be here soon. But until next time, we're all out of time for today. So, Doc, say goodbye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Strange Fruit is produced by Louisville Public Media. Our engineer is Koja Tashiro, who also composed our theme music. For more information about Strange Fruit, visit strangefruitpod.org. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at strangefruitpod. The views expressed on Strange Fruit do not reflect those of Louisville Public Media, its staff, or its underwriters. Strange Fruit is produced by me, Kyla Story. And me, Jason Gardner. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.